Hello there, you're listening to The Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill, and I bet you were expecting someone to say, and I'm Dylan Johnson, but sadly, we are without my magnificent co-host, Dylan Johnson, today. He's off on a trip, but don't worry, I've got two, count them, two special guests to help me talk about some highly original films that are in theaters right now. We have Alessandro Polito de Luna and Sebastian Marcano Perez, who will be making their return to The Box Office Show later in the episode. But right now, let's jump into some news really quickly and then head into our box office numbers. So, rapid fire here. Christopher Walken, he has been cast as Emperor Shaddam IV in Dune 2, Emperor of the Known Universe. And he joins Florence Pugh as Princess Irulan and Austin Butler as Fade Rotha as the new casting for Dune 2. That's pretty exciting, some of those choices. Other choices like Christopher Walken are pretty interesting. A little strange, but I'm confident that Denis Villeneuve knows what he's doing. I think Walken will hit it out of the park. We also have Francis Ford Coppola talking about casting. For his final film, Megalopolis, he's getting together his crew, his cast. Adam Driver is leading it, and he's joined by Forrest Whitaker, Lawrence Fishburne, John Voight, Natalie Emanuel, who you may know from Missande from Game of Thrones. So another great cast being formed there. So another exciting project to look forward to in the coming years. And finally, A Simple Favor, a film that was from a while back starring Anna Kendrick, Blake Lively, with director Paul Feig. It is getting a sequel. So that has been greenlit. So again, you can expect that coming up in the next few years. Now to talk about the box office for this past weekend, May 13th to May 15th. Starting out at the top in its second weekend, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness had $61 million, which is quite a hefty drop more than what we were expecting and predicting last weekend. So it had a 67.5%, which puts it about on par as like the lowest of the MCU. It's basically tied with No Way Home and Black Widow, but it's still doing quite well for itself. 291 million domestically, 688 million worldwide, which has already surpassed the first Doctor Strange gross of 677 million. So it is doing well for itself. As for whether or not it'll hit the billion dollar mark, that's a little bit up in the air. We'll have to see how its legs hold throughout May. Again, there's no big competition until Top Gun Maverick on Memorial Day weekend. So it will be able to have good third weekend and maybe fourth weekend, but we will see if it's able to sustain the momentum and get to a billion. At the least, it'll cross 900 million worldwide. And that is very good news for me and my roster for the box office draft. We have the bad guys coming in second. Yet again, with 6.9 million, it has now hit 66 million domestic, which is good for that comparatively smaller animated family film. Sonic 2, also treasured in the lawn, 4.5 million. A newcomer for the box office this week, Firestarter, that Stephen King adaptation starring Zac Efron, it only made 3.8 million. So maybe this will be the kick in the butt for Zac Efron to make High School Musical 4. We need it. I think he's been holding off because he doesn't know if we can handle it, if the world is ready for the first $3 billion film. But I promise you, Zach, we are ready. We can handle it. In fact, you can bet on it. So go ahead and make that happen. In fifth place, yet again, staying in the top five at number five, everything, everywhere, all at once with $3.3 million. After that, Fantastic Beasts 3 with $2.4 million. It's at $90 million domestic. We don't even know if this will crack 100 million, and that is very disappointing for a Harry Potter film. 
that franchise definitely needs some new juice pumped into it. Fast. The Lost City, which is now in Paramount+, Plus, still able to collect some money, $1.7 million at the box office in its 8th weekend, and it has only $3 million to go to get to $100 million, so this one will certainly hit the century mark. And can you imagine if Fantastic Beasts doesn't, and the Lost City did? That'd be crazy. The Northman, with $1.7 million, beats out another newcomer, Family Camp, with $1.4 million, and rounding out the top 10, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, one of the films we'll be talking about this episode, with $1 million, and it has only $18 million total, which is pretty sad. But it's now on PVOD, I believe, as is The Northman, so hopefully they're going to be able to collect some money that way. And predictions for this upcoming weekend of May 20th to the 22nd, Downton Abbey, A New Era, which is the second Downton Abbey film, the last one opened to $31 million, but again, that was pre-pandemic. It has an audience, but it's certainly skewing older, so I have no idea what this is going to get. $15 million? $20 million? I don't know. It'll make a surprising amount, I think, for sure, but in terms of the opening, will the older crowd rush out to the theaters? Who knows? I think it will be, will be a double-digit grosser in its opening. I don't know if we'll be able to hit 20 million, though. We will see. And also, coming from A24, Men is coming out in limited release, so it won't make many waves at the box office, but that is one to look out for as well, and we'll probably see it appear in our top 10. All right, so now we're going to transition into my talk with Alessandro and Sebastian about the Northmen and the unbearable weight of massive talent. Enjoy. All right. Alessandro, Sebastian, welcome back to the box office show. Thank you. Hello, hello. Not that you guys went anywhere. Not that we went anywhere. See, that's a reference to a movie that Alessandro wasn't able to see. Sadly, we'll we'll at some point you'll get to it. Ooh. So we will start out with the Northman. Northman. So this one we have all seen. So just to get some initial reactions from the third Robert Eggers film, Alessandro, let's start with you. So without any spoilers right now, but just your initial impressions of the film. It's very metal. Very <laughs> metal movie. <laughs> I mean, look, if you if you want to see a Viking movie, like this is the definitive movie to watch. Um, without spoiling, um, Robert Eggers basically tells a straightforward revenge story with awesome visuals and crazy action i mean i i don't i want to i'm trying to keep this like spoiler free but i want to say it so badly we'll get but to like, it shortly but yeah just your initial initial thoughts yeah it's it's a i mean it's an action-packed crazy crazy movie that you know just like has all the robert egger style you would expect you know masterful ambience the dude knows how to create a setting like no one else right now so yeah all right, Sebastian, what about you? 
I completely agree. I haven't seen... I mean, speaking of West Side Story, I haven't seen a movie recently with such control over over camera, atmosphere, just over itself than The Northman. Um, like, there's... I'm I'm going more on the technical side here because I think that's like on first impressions that's the one thing that stood out to me. Robert Eggers is one of like the most controlled directors I uh, you have right now. Like the way his camera flowed through this movie uh, and the way he directed uh, the scene was just impressive. It, it was breathtaking. And I think if if uh, I know I'm I'm I, I sound like I'm like uh, building this dude up, but it it truly was like one of the best qualities of the movie. Apart from uh, I think the cast was very good as well. Just it it's it's a very I'll I'll, I'll steal Jin's word. If you want a quintessential Viking movie, this this is it and. It is very, it's very primal, and I felt like uh, like uh, doing some very biking things uh, after the movie. It, it it left me inspired. Wow, it tapped into your inner Viking, huh? Into my inner primal, primal self. Yeah, I will have to agree with both of you that the greatest strength of this film is its atmosphere. There's a way that Eggers is able to craft that setting and immerse you into it. I think we had talked before briefly about Northmen, the three of us, and I said I was thinking about the imagery a few days after seeing it, which is mm-hmm. pretty rare to like just have images like as I'm going to sleep or going about my day to just have those images pop into my mind. So that was when I knew reflecting on the film a few days afterwards that like this was something special. Like that is not something you get very often. So that, again, I think is the far and away greatest strength that the film offers. Um, And then as you both touched on as well, it is very unflinching in the way that it goes about showing Viking culture and how things were back in, it was like the 800s, right? Like ninth century. So yeah, something like that. Yeah. Very different time, very cruel world. So it definitely is able to get you into experiencing what it was like to be in that world. And certainly, I mean, Eggers is known for his attention to detail uh, and he went all out with this one as well. So yeah, like there's no Vikings with the horns or the fur around it. Like it's very realistic in how it tries to approach. This is what was actually going on. And a lot of times, in terms of the violence and the gore and whatnot, it was not pretty, but the cinematography that he uses to show us that was dazzling for sure. Absolutely. So yeah, now we can go into some spoiler stuff. So if you haven't seen it yet, go ahead and watch it. Again, this whole episode is dedicated to very original films. Go and do that and then return to hear the rest of our review. Okay. So now with some spoiler elements, Alessandra, what was it that you were itching to talk about? No, wait, but before we get into the story, I just want to say something real quick before I forget. It's that um, going into this movie, I thought that the big name actors was, was going to be like a distraction. 
right? Because I, I was kind of caught off guard by how many big name actors they got for the movie. But I actually, I, I, I don't think it was ever distracting. Like I thought Ethan Hawke as like a Viking king would be like off. But no, um, absolutely perfect. <laughs> but he was good. He was great. You know, Nicole Kidman was good, which I, I mean, I honestly, I'm not a big Nicole Kidman fan. I haven't seen like a really good performance from her in a while. But the I feel MC like she ad. Oh, I, I mean, except for that, you know, top five ad. But yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, she was really good in this movie. Um, you know, Alex Skarsgård was great. That's the right Skarsgård, right? Because there's like 50 of them. Yeah, that's um, the right Skarsgård. <laughs> um, he was great. You know, Anya Taylor-Joy was great. The Willem Dafoe cameo. Willem Dafoe cameo was was really neat. I actually, I thought he was going to be in the movie longer, but I thought his inclusion was like such a cool way to to emphasize how important what he says is for like the mm-hmm. overall plot. It's like such good foreshadowing for the future. Um. Yeah. I, no. I just thought the cast was like great. Uh. You know. Yeah. Just that. I. I never. I never thought of. I, I never thought that the, um, like the big name actors would be a distraction the way you did. I mean, to be fair, going into this movie, I didn't want to watch it yesterday. I was. I was. I was excited when it was announced, but the more like, we got closer to release, the less excited I was. Uh. But I forced myself to watch it because of the podcast. I wanted to be prepared and informed. And also, I like the lighthouse, and I like the the Vivich. So uh, I had to I had to watch it. But I was genuinely like impressed. I mean, I it's the cast. The cast just everyone was utilized perfectly, and I think like spe- especially like Willem the Fall. You know, I'll get into like some some supportery things. So if you haven't watched the movie again, I'll do the job. <laughs> Ryan, uh, uh, Willem Willem the foe like perishes in a way, and then his he just returns as this like head later on in in like when he's when Alex Skarsgård goes into the cave to retrieve the sword Zelda style, and it's just so powerful the way that's that's used because you would expect an actor like Willem Dafoe to be throughout used throughout the movie because he's such a, a, a fantastic actor but just seeing him in that first scene uh with Ethan Hawke uh I don't know the child actor's name and and Willem Dafoe in that cave scene where they're all they're doing this ritual that's like fate and 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 uh, kind of ritual and then seeing him return in uh, just as the mangled head like the decapitated head and you just hear his his voice is it was one of those things that like brought me joy just because it's so it was so fucking cool <laughs> i mean the thing with this movie is that it's fucking cool like everything was it's just like this is so raw and primal at times that you had no other option but to like kind of like smile at the at the savageness of it at times. True, yeah. Uh, you had mentioned it, Alessandro, in your initial impressions about how it's a straightforward, conventional sort of revenge story. Um, and so I wanted to talk more about that because that felt to me as one of the 
like weaker parts of it. The setup is obviously similar to things we've seen before. Hamlet, Lion King, where the uncle kills the king, takes the throne. Funny enough, apparently this was this film is based on Scandinavian legend that inspired Hamlet, which later went on to inspire the king and all that. So it's an interesting like full circle thing that happened here because the main character's name is Amleth, which is Hamlet is an anagram of Amleth. So that's pretty cool. Um, but that's also one of the drawbacks of inspiring stories that went on to become much more popular cornerstone pieces of like literature and media. Um, is this very much feels familiar. And so I was wondering, as I was like watching the film, what was going to be the twist or the spin on it in terms of story? Because certainly in like the set dressing aspect, the look of it, the atmosphere of it, clearly that is distinct and very well done with how they immerse you into the whole Viking landscape uh, and the Iceland landscapes. Um, so that was well done. But in terms of the story and the writing of it, how are they going to put a spin on it to make it fresh or to give new insight into this revenge tale? And after finishing it and thinking on it, I don't think that they did do that. I feel like it was just the full on straight up revenge story that at the beginning of the film, if you were to make a prediction of how it would go, you'd be completely right. And it also doesn't help that the film itself constantly tells you exactly where it's going to go um, with having the whole the fates and the destiny laid out by people like the Bjork cameo um, <laughs> and there's a few other times where people will come up and say like this is how it's going to go and they keep bringing up the idea of you'll have to make this choice but it never felt like we were ever going to get to a point where there was a meaningful choice it felt inevitable that he was always going to go ahead and pick the revenge path and then the consequences that come from that also felt like pretty expected like you knew where this was going to go and so yeah i just don't know if anything uh refreshing or insightful or new was offered by the particular revenge tale they decided to go with so i wanted to get your guys's opinions on that i don't think simplicity is ever like a bad thing and it is very straightforward. And like you said, the movie does tell you exactly where it's going to go multiple times. I mean, there's they mentioned like the river of, of flames or fire several times. So that in my head, I'm like, well, and um, they, they very well established like the volcano was a big thing of it, like a big part of what was about to happen. So the whole time I was just waiting for for okay, the river of flames is gonna be the 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 volcano, the lava. And at some point, something's gonna happen, and then that's when uh, they're gonna they're gonna do. So you are waiting the whole time, kind of for that, especially if you know the beats. I don't think simplicity is ever a bad thing, and I don't think I saw it as a as a as an as a negative as a con for this movie because I think you make you make make it open in atmosphere and 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 like the performances like i think you get you you don't get an overbloated story about something else right it it's just uh and i think it really works cuz that the the whole thing his whole mission Alexander Alexander Skarsgård's 
whole mission was uh, save my mother and avenge my father. And then when you get to that scene with uh, him uh, actually confronting his his mom, and then there's like the whole kind of like reversal where it's like, no, she was the one that uh, wanted the king dead. And you're like, oh, damn, okay. And I feel feel like uh, there's enough intrigue there to make a compelling, if you will. I'm trying to find the right words. I'm kind of struggling here, but I don't, mm-hmm. I never saw it as a, I never saw it like as a, as a bad thing that the story was so simple and straightforward. Right. Yeah. And I don't mean to say like, if it's straightforward or conventional, that it means it's bad. It just means that it may not be taken up to the next level and might right, not no, become I... like we talked before about like five star films and would we have to get to get up to five star? Um, yeah in having compelling themes and exploring that um, and exciting ways is one of those ways for me. And so the fact that it didn't seem to do so is just why like it is one of the weaknesses of the film that I'm pointing to for why it'll end up at the score that I give it and not higher than that. Um, Right. But yeah, there was that twist of, Oh, the mother was in on it. It was actually her idea. And that definitely is a departure from what we've seen in those other very similar revenge setups um, but I don't know if it was enough of a enough. like crazy twist to make it like stand out more than the straightforward or stand out enough from being that straightforward conventional revenge story because all that really happens after that is now she gets added to the list of, of person to take that, revenge upon yeah. Yeah. yeah so it is like a interesting twist in the moment it was one that I was like kind of expecting but again I don't think like the quality of a twist shouldn't be judged on if you can predict it. Cause sometimes you just get lucky with a guess and be like, Oh, I think this is where I'll go. Um, so never going to hold that against it, but, and it was an interesting twist. I'm glad they went for it because it does make it that much more unique, but I just, don't think just... it was enough to make it like unconventional or an original take on the revenge yeah. story. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you mean. I completely, it's like one of those things that not just like that twi- twist itself. I'm just uh, kind of using that as an example. Uh, but there's, there's, um, can't find the words. But I, I, I do think I do agree that that at one point you, the movie does kind of leave you wanting something else. That's that's how I felt. Not about the plot, like the revenge story, but about. Uh, kind of the introduction of this like mystical elements which are the valkyries uh at at one point you see odin uh and and like i think it's odin i interpret it as odin uh and like this this like other realmish elements and especially uh the york cameo which i expected way more out of but it was just literally that and then just kind of like see crows after that. Uh, so I think, I think that's where I was more lacking in terms of like what this movie could have been and could have done. Although those elements were very well utilized. Right. Okay. Yeah. That go ahead. Alessandro. 
No, I just I just wanted to follow up on what Seb said that um you know, you said that that this movie was you know, very straightforward, but I feel like where it does veer off from the conventional path is in its use of uh mythical elements, you know, like when they said I'll see you in hell, I wasn't expecting them to literally go to hell, but mm-hmm. they they did. Um <laughs> so it's like those mythical elements that take what should be just like a straightforward story and kind of like make it larger than life. Right. I mean, you could argue as well where, where it's like an, you can argue that this is kind of like an unreliable narrator situation where, where maybe someone is telling the story and things are getting blown out of proportion, you know, kind of like uh, in the movie 300. But um, yeah, I, I think also this movie, the reason why, because I agree with you, Ryan, it was like very predictable. I mean, they tell you throughout the whole movie what's going to happen and then it happens and you're like, oh, OK. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, not, not much arguing there. Yeah. He repeats throughout the whole movie. He's like, I will avenge you, father. I will save you, mother. I will kill whatever his name was. And kill then he does you, it. And, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, I th- I think the reason the reason why all of this is so predictable as well is because it's um. This is kind of like a like a Seinfeld is unfunny type effect, right? Where it's like <laughs> since 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 these like Scandinavian uh stories or these ancient Greek stories inspired everything, like everything like we're so used to it that it just it it feels weird to see a, a movie that doesn't like take the baseline concept and like try to flood it with plot twists and little things mm-hmm. and subversions and things. So it's kind of odd for us now to see a straightforward story. But yeah. I don't think I don't think like Seb said, I don't think there's anything wrong with the simplicity. I feel like you can take something simple and you can amplify it through, you know, style the way this movie does. I mean, it's stylized as hell. You know, as hell. They, I mean, yeah, you literally see like a Valkyrie flying through the sky and, and like Which is you see so like exciting. Yeah. And 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 also you said sorry, last thing, because I'm kind of going on a rant, but no, no, no. Keep um uh ryan said something about how he never really makes a choice in the end but i think he doesn't make a choice because they they make it clear in that boat scene with anya taylor joy where he's like he has a choice between his family and and like a life filled with love or like chasing down revenge and just dying a basically kind of like a meaningless death um i actually interrupt sorry to interrupt you i actually took it as the opposite uh because they with the the use of like that family tree he and he he tells he he tells because when he originally like sealed his fate in that scene with Ethan Hawke and Willem Dafoe, right? That they're doing the ritual. He's like, I promise, I promise that what he has to do, whatever he he's gonna do in the future, and that eventually becomes like avenging his father and taking over for him, and that's his whole mission throughout. So in that boat scene, when he hasn't completed his fate, he hasn't. He hasn't done what he what he has to do. I think by going back and completing his fate, he secures his family. Because then you have that 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 kind of cut away to Anya Taylor Joy with the two babies, where she like says, "Oh, we're safe" or whatever. Which I it's like it's I think yeah I, think I, I, I didn't going- care for I didn't care for that. I didn't care for that. That felt very much <laughs> no that that whole that whole cutaway happy ending. I I didn't care for it at all in the slightest. It felt like it felt like a studio ending. 
it felt like the studio was like, oh, we need a happy ending. All right, show them happily ever after with the baby. I, I don't know. But it's also I it's also one of those things where like he has this these visions. So you kind of see these these moments through his perspective. And most of the time you can also say that that he's not delusional, but like he's imagining these these kind of things and he hopes that that's what uh Anya and his babies are actually that they're actually safe or whatever. So this like his hopes, his desires. I mean, throughout the movie, he 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 carries this uh, this kind of like burden of legacy and his father and avenging his father, and he he uh, he's the rightful heir to the throne or whatever. So yeah, you can you can you can make the same argument of like the unreliable narrator with those kind of sequences as well. Right. Yeah, I would. Definitely say, because um, yeah, I'm saying the like story itself, the plot is very conventional, but where it becomes unconventional is where Edgar's style comes in and he uses the mysticism and the mythology and all that stuff um, as an opportunity to lean into his weirder style. Um, so I think that part is great. That, that's a great way to um, utilize that mysticism and to bring in more surreal uh, aspects to the film. And then I was also trying to gauge what he's using that for in relation to Amla's character. As you guys brought up, it could be an unreliable narrator situation, or it could be the visions that he's having in order to justify to himself that, oh, this revenge quest I'm on is like divinely ordained and I am meant to do this. This is my entire purpose, um, which he mentions multiple times. Like, this is what I do someone asked him like what do you do after this and he's like i don't know now i can finally start living who cares this is all i meant to do is just exact this revenge um so it could be interesting if we interpret those uh, surrealist moments and those visions and whatnot to be things that are happening in his mind him blowing out like him uh, obtaining a sword out of proportion where he's actually finding this like old skeleton dude um but turns out all he did is just go into some cave somewhere and find it like that could be an interesting interpretation, I think. But then it also sort of gets combated by the idea of multiple times he's told the fate of, oh, you have to kill them with this sword that's like meant for revenge and you have to do it on the lake of fire, the volcano. Mm-hmm. And I feel like at certain points in the film, like especially earlier on when he's told those things, there's like no way that he could possibly know that stuff. Like everything happens exactly how it's prescribed to happen. How could he possibly have predicted that there would be a volcano where he ends up and that he's going to fight him there? Like, I don't know. Some of those moments makes it seem like, oh, no, it is just straight. Like, we're supposed to interpret these fantastical elements as just part of this world that is being created. Um, yeah, I was going to say. determinism like, is. Go ahead. No, I was going to say like that, that theory also, because I, I, you could interpret it like that. And there's points where you're. I can even interpret it like an unreliable narrator in sort of those terms. But it also, the movie does very well establish that these mythical elements are also real. Like, he's not imagining these things uh, for the most part. Because even when um, there's a part where he gets, like, seriously, like, injured. uh, Or is it when after he's, like, hung up and the crows, like... Like he gets released from that, 
And then he gets saved by Anya Taylor. And that's when she reveals that she's a Valkyrie, right? That's the reveal. Yeah. And and uh, so there are clearly, and I mean, just like him going into 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 heaven. I think those are all kind of like well-established to be kind of like real things that are happening. I feel like it, at no point he shies away from from saying these are these are like all like illusions. So it's like a double-edged sword uh, with that theory. Yeah, and I, I appreciate like in all how he uses the mythology aspects in order to make it even more stylized. Um, but I all I kind of feel like it would have been more interesting if he had really leaned into the idea of no, these are just illusions in his mind, and this is like the process of myth making happening right before our eyes. It's him truly believing that he's divinely ordained for all this stuff. Um, and so he's justifying his mission by invoking all that mythological stuff. I feel like that would have been a more interesting take. Cause at least it would be like saying something about at least historical tales that we've heard, how some of those things can be blown out of proportion and can be used to justify certain things. Um, as it is now, I agree with you that, yeah, it seems like some of these things are meant to be taken as, literal things that happen in the world. Um, and then that plays into more of the fact of, okay, so it was just determinism from the start. He really had no choice because again, they say the whole choose kindness of your kin or taking down a fuel near, but if we've already been given the determinism prophecy at the beginning of you have to kill him on the lake of fire, he was always heading to that point. And also I thought his, like when he is given that final choice and Anya Taylor-Joy is like, please just stay with me. Let's continue on this boat. Like very quickly, he just said, I got to go back or else they'll hunt us down and kill us. And there's no yeah. real, like no real reason to believe that. No, so it there, felt weird that he, there's no threat. Yeah. It felt <laughs> weird that he tried to justify it in that way. I was like, that's a big leap you're taking just to fit in with like the idea that you have to go back and do this. Um, so that's what I meant when I was like, oh, he has no real choice, no meaningful choice. It's also kind of that paranoia, which I, now with these kind of stories, I'm also, I'm also like, cause, uh, I, I'm also like hyper aware of, cause he, at that point he, he, uh, was that, was that, sorry, you're going to have to read, like, help me out here. Was that before? You're the one that saw the it yesterday. Scene? How is this happening? I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember the boat scene happens before or after he kills Nicole Kidman and their young. No, that happens before. He kills the son, his original son, Fjolnir's older son, that was not with Nicole Kidman. Then mm-hmm. they go in the boat. Then he's like, I got to go back. And then that's when he kills Nicole Kidman and the new child. Right. And okay, then so Fjolnir's like, meet me on the volcano. Right, so that's that's kind of one of those things that like he is his own paranoia of leaving things like certain like pages unturned, I guess mm-hmm. the same way uh, his uncle did with him, leaving those loose threads open. I mean, that's yeah, kind of like had had Nicole Kidman and the little kid gotten killed at that point, and then they leave on the boat, then I can see it. Because now he's left Fjolnir in the same position he was in at the beginning, which is, yeah. my whole family's dead, and everything's been stolen from me. I have nothing in this life except pursuing revenge. Mm-hmm. But Fjolnir still had his wife, had his actual 
well, I guess both of them were his actual son. But now he has this son that will be the actual, like, successor, the heir. So, yeah. like, he still had, he was still able to repair things and all that. <laughs> uh, just, just wanted to say that one thing I, I, one thing I don't understand is that I thought the movie, in a subtle way, ba- basically made up a point to show that Fjolnir basically has no power left by the time uh, Alex Skarsgård finds him. Oh yeah, village. no, like, it, it it goes out of its way to tell you that he got overruled. Like like there's a, yeah another another king took over the the kingdom basically. Like yeah, what he, he was he, in he, he, of. he's not king anymore. His throne is not his. He's living in this tiny village with like a few people. So it 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 feels like revenge is pointless at this point because it's like okay yeah you'll kill him and then what like you he he really doesn't have anything to begin with so it's like I don't understand why the movie would would end with him killing Fjolnir and then showing this happy ending where like he goes to heaven and and the kids are all right it it just, it just feels it felt like very like tacked on and and and. I don't know, just confused. Like the messaging feels confused. It's like, what's what are I, you trying to say here? Did the um did the horse actually make it? Like the Valkyrie thing, did it actually make it to the like gate in the sky? I felt I thought it cut off before it made it there. And that was sort well, of I mean, suggesting like nothing actually happened. It's it's implied that it, like it made it there. Maybe I don't know. I feel like the choice to cut it off before then could be commenting on that fact of like, uh, was it all worth it? Does he actually end up there? But I agree with your point of, I think in the beginning it's because he's still in a position of power. Like he's the Lord of this land. He's got a bunch of slaves and whatnot. So while it's not the kingdom, Fjolnir does still have like some measure of power, certainly more than uh, Amleth had for his whole life since his father got killed. So I think at that point, it still makes sense that he would pursue the revenge quest. And I do like the idea that, He's not going back to reclaim his kingdom. Like, that's completely taken out of the picture. Like, they're both, they've both been taken down so many pegs. And now it's just about right. exacting revenge on the one guy, not even becoming king again. Right. It's just about avenging his father. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I think that it, wraps up our Northman talk. Does anyone have any final thoughts to throw out? I just want to conclude by saying that. Robert Eggers is one of the uh is one of my not favorite directors but I, I think anytime one of his projects get announced I get very excited cuz he is telling like just straight up folk tales in such a visually compelling way and I think that's why movies like uh like uh The Witch and The Lighthouse are are as memorable as they are, and even this one, the Northman. It's like that. I think that the simplicity of their story match with his great visuals. Uh, is uh, is like very compelling. There's something very compelling about his uh the stories he chooses to tell and the way he tells them. So I think the Northman is um. A good evolution of style. It is not my favorite story he has told so far. I think The Lighthouse takes that easily. Uh, But I I am very excited to 
to continue see him grow as this kind of like folktale director because I really love uh, what he's kind of doing there. That's a great way to put it, the folktale director. (laughs) Okay, so out of how many vengeful destinies out of five? (laughs) I'll say three and a half. Um... I'm in between three and a half and four stars. So three and three fourths. Gotcha. I'm going to give it a four star. Again, for the reason I said about that whole, like the atmosphere aspect, completely nails it in this film. Like it's beautiful. Well done. And it is always entertaining. Like I was always engaged in the film. So. Yeah, it's truly one that it did everything it was supposed to do with its massive budget. We'll see if Eggers ever gets a budget that large. I doubt it. But uh, the one time he was able to get it, he used it well. He actually, he went on record saying that he would probably never do a, a big budget movie like this again. Well, there you go. Which is so, he, good. I'm he didn't like having to deal with, uh, he didn't like having to deal with studio interference and shit. So. Yeah, I'd imagine so, yeah. Yeah. Um, if also, sorry. Last thing. Watch the Green Knight. <laughs> that is all. I was it. Uh, uh, a lot of this movie reminded me of how good the Green Knight was. That's another common thought I had during this movie. It explores similar themes. It's very similar. Lot, yeah, that, that, yeah, it is. Know, there's a good comparison to be made there. For sure. All right. So Northman, watch that. And definitely one of the most original films, despite coming from another like old folk legend, The Green Knight from last year. So yeah, both of those worth a watch. Okay, very briefly, I wanted to get both of your opinions on Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is another very original film that's out in theaters. Dylan and I talked about it last week, so I won't go over my thoughts again, but I wanted to hear what you guys thought of that film. Sebastian, what about you? I think it's a very uh, it's it is a very original movie, uh, in its use of uh, kind of that multiverse premise to tell this story about uh, generational trauma, which seems to be a common theme in twenty twenty movies. <laughs> I mean, just recently, uh, Turning Red kind of deals with the same thing, kind of like kind of like that that dynamic between mother and daughter. Encanto. Uh, Encanto, yeah, it's it's uh, it seems to be a we're dealing with our family issues in 2020, and this was this was a very good entry into that kind of genre. Um, I I think for for me it if we're going into to the movie, I think it it overbloated its premise at points, like there were several part parts during the f- like part one everywhere as it's titled uh that i felt like okay i understand what we're doing here but uh we've been doing it for a little bit too long and i felt the same thing about uh part two where it kind of takes a little too long to get to its main premise when you could have concised it a bit and that's literally my only issue i have with the movie it's pacing and timing the rest, I really did enjoy how original that multiverse uh, angle 
was to the story, and the cast was great. I mean, Michelle Yeoh is a national treasure. Uh, yes, very true. And and it just it just it's just a fan a, a, a fantastically made film. I think. I wish I wish to see whatever the Daniels do next. That, mm -hmm. That's that big scale. And um, yeah, that's that's my opinion on everything, everywhere, all at once. And you haven't you haven't seen it a second time though, right? I have not been able to see it a second time. At some point, you're gonna have to. And I want to see if your opinion changes a bit because I agreed with you on the first viewing. I was like, okay, it was sort of an overload at times, but the second time through, I was prepared for it, and it was amazing. Loved I'm it even to more. Give it a, I'm going to have to give it a second watch. Yeah, Another rewatch sometime soon. Alessandro, you only saw it once as well, right? Yeah, I only saw it once. Gotcha. And what were your thoughts on that first but not final viewing? <laughs> uh, well, I think also this, this film actually goes back really quick to what we said about simplicity. Because at its core, the, the story is very simple. You know, it's, it's a mother trying to reconnect with her daughter and also with her father. Um, and, and, you know, it's, they took a very basic story and they just exploded it with visuals and style, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this is a, a, a great example of how you take what is at its core a very, very basic, not in a bad way, a basic message mm -hmm. and you just uh you make it completely original and unique in in every way i mean the effects in this movie are insane to hear that only like a team of like six people did it five it was like yeah it like five the, people yeah it was the directors and three other dudes or that's insane dudes. like that that's people. that's crazy inconclusive but yeah, yeah five people total yeah five five people insane. which, which is, for yeah, the amount crazy. of for a, uh, a movie that literally relies on visual effects, it's insane. Just goes to show you, you don't need like these million dollar. I mean, this movie had a million dollar budget, but you don't need like 3,000 3, people working on a movie to do something that you can accomplish with a team of five. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think this is honestly going to go down as the like the new Scott Pilgrim, like the Scott Pilgrim of this generation, at least. It's very effects heavy. It's very, you know, stylized. Like they, they very stylized. At its core, they both have a, um, you know, a, a general message, a universal message, universal message. You know, I f I feel like that's such a w great way to describe it that I never thought about before. That uh, mm -hmm. Scott Pilgrim is one of those movies that not only has inspired, like the next generation of filmmakers. I mean, you see it at this, at, at our level, you see how like that Edgar Wright style has infused a lot of like people. And I think, uh, this, the same way that movie is viewed, I can absolutely see how this movie is, is going to like inspire that next wave of style. Uh, you see it from, from like filmmakers. That's such a, I, a great way to think about it. Because I completely agree with that point. Yeah, for sure. All right, any other things to throw out about everything, everywhere, all at once? 
No, just a really, really fun movie that you should go watch. I mean, if you're into that manic, funny, absurdist style, then yeah, definitely go watch it. It's a very meta movie, you know, very, very self-aware, very fun. All right. So once again, the caveat that you guys haven't seen it more than once, but I'm going to... That's the only downside. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to ask you out of how many absurdism bagels smothered in nihilism cream cheese... I am leaning more towards a four with this one. It's also, I don't want to say that I'm also in the same realm as a three and a half and four, since I don't want to copy my answer before, <laughs> but I, I, it is more towards a four. I thought it was, it's like for movies that when you compare it to everything else that's coming out, it does feel like it's fresh and exciting and just for like what it's able to accomplish, I think it it has a lot of value. Gotcha. I'll, Alessandro, I'll give you? it a, I'll give it just, I'm going to be a party pooper. I'll just give it a three and a half. It's the same thing I gave <laughs> Northman. Not very original, but um, yeah, I, I just had some, some pacing issues with the movie that kept me from pushing it further, but I, I definitely got to watch it a second time. So for sure. And also he's a notorious harsh critic. So Oh yeah, the harshest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I hate so, all yeah. movies. What did what did you give Mission Impossible? Yeah, what did you give Mission Impossible what, Fallout? Mission Impossible Fallout, I give like a six out of five. Okay, never mind. He's <laughs> he's the greatest critic of our generation. And that's me being generous. Well, a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> he's got a few on the mark opinions there. the other ones we got to give a curve to listen i would have rated fallout higher if it had the the arm cocking in the Bro, movie yeah instant five out of five if it had that that it, it severely missing and i think that without it the movie is flawed i mean like it's unwatchable almost yeah irreparably broken yeah. And it didn't have that. Just wait. So just shut it off. I just wait. shut it off after after I, I didn't I didn't see the gun cocking. It was a mass walk out of the theater. And everyone <laughs> saw that it didn't have that. Just emptied out. To be fair, I remember being genuinely disappointed when I was actually sitting down watching the movie and I was waiting for it and it wasn't there. And that was that was a big tragedy. Yeah. It was hard to recover from that. They should, bro. In the next one, in Dead Reckoning Part One, they gotta have that. They gotta have somebody cock them arms. I mean, it's not Henry Cavill though. Yeah, it's not Henry Cavill though. It won't be the same, but you get the Rock to do it. If anybody else can pull off uh, (laughs) the, that's the one thing that uh, Fast and Furious was missing back when they had the Rock. R.I.P. Hobbs. Was uh, some uh, some gun sound effects on those giant muscles that the Rock has? <laughs> That's such exactly. a weird turnover. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now we can move on to the unbearable weight of massive talent, which sadly Alessandro did not watch. Why? Probably best for the filmmakers of that, so they don't get their film rated. Like a two out of five or something. Like like a negative three. Yeah. I can I can I can safely say, knowing Alessandro, his rating would probably be a two and a half with this movie. 
I don't want to put words in his mouth. Wow. Uh, but uh, I can I can already see where that's going. You should watch the movie. Uh, I'm gonna watch it. I I, I, yeah. I plan on watching it. And then we can see on your letterbox if it's now a two point five. Now, exactly. now you can you can you can judge me uh, silently from the from the comfort of your home. Yeah. Yeah, now that I, now that I that I set you up like that, you're either gonna come off as not that harsh of a person or like a complete asshole for hating a unbearable weight. So you're welcome. Um, I, listen, every every movie sucks. I I literally never liked a movie ever. No, you. Um, n- famously, you hate movies. You hate every single I fa- movie. I famously hate movies. In fact, I I pay to go watch movies just so I can give them bad reviews. I'm the new Armin <laughs> White. <laughs> Uh, all right so sebastian and i we did see it in the same theater apparently had no idea that was (laughs) what took place but yes so what are your reactions to it i guess we'll try to do as non-spoilery as a as a review as possible Mm -hmm. and then towards the end we can uh have alessandro step away take the headphones off and do a very brief like Spoilerly, spoiler talk. Um, but yeah, I think we can talk about most of the film and its positives and downsides without touching specific moments. Um, yeah. So go ahead and lead us off with your impressions of the film. I think this movie was good. Not bad, not great, but simply good. And I don't mean that in a bad way. And I don't mean that... Uh, in a good way, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Seems I pretty think neutral right now. It is very neutral because I think there's a lot to enjoy about the movie, and I laughed sev- at multiple points at where I was intended to laugh, but then there mm-hmm. was other points where I felt like uh, it was it had something missing. That being said, the movie does have um, more heart to it than I thought it was gonna be. Sorry, now I got I got a uh, I got hiccups. Um, talking about Nick Cage uh, does something to me. Um, <laughs> the movie does have more heart than I thought it would, based on um, like the trailers and everything leading up to it. Just kind of this meta comedy about Nick Cage and how he's washed out or whatever. I think there is a good. Uh, um, it does have heart. And I think that's that's one of the things that really surprised me about the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, there was just some things with a with a plot. Once we get to spoilers, uh, that that will I'll get into about why it's not as great as it could have been. Now I'm interested in your opinion because we haven't talked about this movie at all, and I want to know where you're at. Gotcha. I also. And coming down on the side of, it's good. It's not great, but it's not bad at all. First of all, the premise of this, I think it's just so fun and unique. And when are we ever going to get something like this again? Where and very a major rarely. Hollywood star, an Academy Award winning actor as well, who is game to do a project like this, which is actively exaggerating him. Um, and making fun of him at a lot of times, but he's leaning into that. He's going all out. Like that is so cool. Props to Nick Cage for 
being able to do something like this. I feel like if there's ever an actor that would do something like this, it would be Nick Cage, and it could only work with Nick Cage. I don't exactly. think there's another. I don't think there's another actor that this could work. This premise could work with. I don't think The Rock would even, which is one of those like big actors that that sometimes could be met about about his status as an actor, would do something at this level that both right. mocks him. And, but at the same time, celebrates him, and I think that exactly. goes that speaks volumes about like kind of like the glory of Nick Cage. Exactly, spoken beautifully, and that's why this is such a special film. Because again, it's just something we're not going to get again, or certainly not to the level. Because again, Nick Cage has been around for decades at this point. His career has gone through such highs and lows. And right now he's in the midst of a comeback, which is great to see. Yeah, not pig, that he went the anywhere. Other year. That's true. Not that he went anywhere. Um, so it's lovely to see him get into the self-referential part of his career and just really have fun with it. Um, and I'm excited to see what he continues to do. But I'm also excited to see what Pedro Pascal continues to do because he's so good in this film. And the absolute heart of this film, at least for me, is that chemistry between the two of them. I was waiting for you to bring that up because, <laughs> I mean, Pedro Pascal has also been one of those actors that has seemingly out of nowhere blown up, but he's also been one of those actors that has been around for for ages, if you actually go back. He's been around for, for a while now, but in it, he is so charismatic in this, and he's so, his dynamic with Nick Cage is so entertaining. And just like that, those two characters bouncing off each other, like the exaggerated Nick Cage and this uh, this arms dealer, question mark. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> which, which from the beginning, they, like the movie is kind of like coy on. And it's, it's just so, so funny. And I think those two are the, the it's what make the movie what it is. Apart from, uh, well, I'll get to that in the, when we talk about spoilers. Right. Another. Um, go ahead. No, I was going to say another thing that I uh, that I thought really made this movie was kind of how there were, it was, it was very referential to Nick Cage, but not as much as you would expect it to. And I think that's. They found like a really good balance there. Uh, that mm-hmm. doesn't make it like overbearing or or like or like oh this is just like Nick Cage right this like every every single moment is like oh here's another reference. I thought those were very balanced and well utilized throughout the movie. Yeah, I agree. I think they were um, pretty judicious in the way that they use those references i feel like i don't know if you have this premise and you already got nick cage on board i feel like you could have indulged a little bit more apparently there were a lot of deleted scenes that that, like recreated some moments that nick cage like it's part of why he came on the film was Mm. to do certain scenes like certain references to uh, parts of his filmography and so i feel like here or there they could have leaned into it more but I do think they struck a solid balance of allowing it to be accessible to people that are not like crazy Nick Cage super fans. Yeah. 
I do gotta say, not enough National Treasure references. I feel, <laughs> I feel like we've been cheated. I feel like we've been, I, I feel betrayed. Honestly, uh, we just see like a poster and that's it. Yeah, and I, like one I, uh, reference in the dialogue. Yeah, I feel like that kind of let. No, I won't. I don't think that need. I don't think that's a spoiler, right? You can go into spoilers right now. Well, yeah, so let's go ahead and slide into spoilers. So if you haven't seen it, click away now, go see it, come back. Yeah, I don't know if mentioning that it's just a poster was a spoiler, which I don't think so. But I'm like, oh, before I I slip more into that kind of like spoilery talk. Um, I thought the, 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 um, what I meant by heart was that not only Pedro Pascal and Nick Cage and that, that relationship, but something that they didn't show in the trailers was kind of like this. Uh, it, it became a, a, another movie about uh, uh, this kind of like dynamic between a parent and their child. And I thought that was a nice surprise going into it because that's not something that was advertised. It's not something I talked about in marketing or. It, it, that wasn't the main thing that was advertised, which I can understand why, because the marketing was very much like, hey, this is Nick Cage riffing on Nick Cage. That's the movie. This is what you're going to get, which right. at first was like what was both exciting and worrisome to me, because I'm like, which goes back to my point of, about like all these references. I thought it was just going to be like overwhelmingly like. Just throw every Nick Cage reference possible in it. But the movie really did have like a plot that wasn't just that, that didn't rely on just that. But it, it used that to like lift its premise up and, and be funny and be and be that meta comedy that it wants to be, while also being a genuine, like funny movie with right. a lot of like good character moments and 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 just be just be like an like a well-rounded movie right just to touch on on how like that family subplot part also factors into the meta aspects of the film that they're going for i like that as they're trying to talk about javi's screenplay that he's coming up with and how that's like sprinkling in some things that are going on in the like plot between Javi and Nick Cage, mm-hmm. they specifically comment on the idea of this needs to be a character driven drama. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to have it be this kidnapping plot. That's just this boring. It's trite and stupid. And then they're like, Oh, well, if you're thinking about marketing, you have to have this big action. You got to have the hook. And yeah. in the actual marketing, yeah, they emphasize, Oh, it's Nick Cage driven on Nick Cage in this big action comedy. And you never saw anything about the family subplot, which is what they mm-hmm. open with. Um, so I thought it was interesting how they were including that in the actual story itself of what they kind of wanted to do with the film, but then what they ended up having to emphasize and really lean into throughout the film. Mm -hmm. It, it, that is a very funny, uh, way to think about like kind of a meta way to think about the actual marketing of the movie and kind of the meta commentary that the uh, movie was going for. Cause, uh, I also found this movie to be kind of like, uh, like a spiritual adaptation not not adaptation like sequel to adaptation 
which is another mm-hmm. Nick Cage movie that goes uh, kind of unreferenced. Which is on, curious because like, it was sort of a layup with uh, the self, yeah. you know, commentary. Which, and this whole movie has the whole has all the whole like thing about doing a script or like writing a script, and mm-hmm. that that's that's where I, my head was at like the entire movie. I was like, this is this is like an adaptation movie without being adaptation um because even even down to this uh uh spoiler for both adaptation and unbearable weight so i'm gonna i don't want to uh I, I wanted to go uh but even like that happy ending he gets kind of felt like okay how do we how do we like wrap this up and he, in both adaptation and this one they just have like this very happy hollywood ending which it makes more more sense in this one than in adaptation. Although adaptation, it exists as a commentary. I just thought that it was a funny way of comparing both both movies because I felt like they had a lot of in in common in a way. Specifically, both starring Nick Cage. Right. Yeah. Um. So you are saying you did like the whole family subplot bit. I think it added it added more than what I was expecting to. I think I, I think you. it wasn't my favorite part of the movie. Uh, I think most of the characters were like his ex wife and daughter were a bit underwritten, and they were just like kind of there to be like, "Oh, Nick Cage, you're washed out when we don't like you." There wasn't like right. really like a lot of nuance there, uh, <laughs> which is part of my faults. But I thought it. The idea of that being part of the movie was uh, was was something that I didn't know was there that I, I kind of appreciated the movie for. It right. added more I, more more to the drama than just hey here's Nick Cage. Right. Yeah, I think what? the idea of having that family subplot is appealing, and I like the specific idea of like the daughter being upset because. He's so self-absorbed that he's not letting her, like, be a part of, like, the family unit. Like, all he's really doing is just pushing his interests on her. And then she even says, like, you're just trying to mold me into a new version of you. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that stuff I thought was a fairly interesting thing to introduce. But I don't know if it was in the performances or... In just the lack of having nuance in the writing, and the fact that they really drop it, yeah, it was a bit of both, and the fact that they sort of drop it um, as they lean into the third act, it just didn't really work for me. They really kind of go in a separate direction towards that back half, and Mm -hmm. it. I feel I completely agree with you that that's where like it falls off and. Like it doesn't make it as satisfying a plot point as it should be, especially right. if you set it, it up in such a big way. Because that's like kind of like the whole first act setup. It's exactly. very leaning on that. Yeah, and the and I feel like the way it ends also actively um, contradicts or goes against the what you would think would be the payoff to that first act setup, which is. Like he's his whole thing about he's so obsessed with his career and he's ignoring his family. He's not being present. And then at the very end, he makes and stars in the movie. Like in the movie, they have 
the adaptation of Javi's script, which is just the movie we saw play out. He's starring yeah. in that movie and it's featuring like the most traumatic moments in their lives. Why would they be okay huh. with that? Everything up to that point would make you believe they would be so they against. They would not be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. That they're like, wow, you just starred in our trauma for the whole world and you're an actor again and now you're celebrated and now you're going to do more roles. Like it feels like that is the opposite of what should have been happening. So yeah, that weird like Hollywood happy ending felt hollow in terms of that family subplot. See, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about that scene specifically, but you're absolutely right. I was kind of thinking of the more, the more, uh, like the the other scene where uh, she suggests to watch uh, Paddington Two, and then they <laughs> have they have that nice moment. But I completely, completely forgot about uh, the implications of that of yeah. that uh, movie scene, which you're absolutely correct about. Uh, yeah, it was, yeah, that, it was odd. I will say I'd love the the living room scene. Like I thought that was really sweet. That was the best uh, scene that contained the family. Mm-hmm. Like, it was really well done. I really enjoyed right, that I part. Agree. And then picking Paddington too was a lovely choice. It was really sweet. I'm also Again, I don't really know what in the story compelled Nick Cage to now all of a sudden be like, yes, you can you can like share something that you're interested in with me. If he's at the point where he's, again, starring in that movie that's about them and he's once again an actor, he's not giving that up. Like, I don't know, it feels weird. Like, they had that conversation halfway through the film of how she's like, I... Like, I can't share anything with you. I feel like I always have to like what you like or else I'll be cast out. And that's like brought up, but then in that same scene, he sort of is like arguing against it, where he's like, I'm not mm-hmm. molding you. I just want to, I'm like guiding you. I'm just trying to share what I like with you. Like he pushes back against it in that moment. And then at the end, when he does the whole starring in the film about their most traumatic moment, like I see where they're like, this is a nice Hollywood ending where he lets her share something that she likes with him. But I don't know where the actual character motivation came in, in that story. I- I see. I see. So that also I, felt I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, I see yeah. where your where your concerns are at. Because uh, I also agree. It's just kind of like one of the things. Like, oh, they went through this very traumatic moment, and now they're a okay. They didn't have to work for it. Now they're perfectly fine. Now, um, uh, it, it it that's one of those plot things in the movie that make you kind of kind of unsatisfied at the end. Because there, there was just a lot missing from the the movie. It, it, it really like left you wanting wanting something more. There's a lot of times where you were like, okay, I feel like we should have more here. And I can't quantify what that more is. But moments like those where it isn't so cut and dry. But again, I I do think this is also like a... a like, comedy and sometimes we we are like leaning on those comedies because they're just comedies and don't expect much of them but i mean if you're going out of your way to set up those kind of beats they shouldn't be resolved so easily you know right i feel like there's a good there's a good balance between yeah and so suddenly so i feel like that's that's a very big flaw the movie does have yeah, and talking about some other things that felt like there should have been more to the film, 
um, Tiffany Haddish's character, I feel like is so I, underutilized. I dislike like, those two characters. Yeah, I disliked um, them too. The guy was I, just obnoxious, and she is funny, but she was not funny in this movie at all. Like, she didn't really have anything comedic to do. So I don't know why they went out of their way to get Tiffany Haddish for this role. I mean, most of the time, she was just like saying lines in her into his earpiece very flatly. It was yeah. strange. This is something that uh, I'm going to bring up another uh, Apple TV Plus show, uh, the second one in the podcast. Uh, if you watch The After Party, which has her as this kind of, it's a murder mystery, and she's kind of like the detectives trying to solve this case. Uh, her performance in this movie was very reminiscent of her performance there, which was completely underwhelming. Because I don't know if the it's the way she's written in these projects or if it's just her. Although I've seen Tiffany Haddish and she can be funny, but yeah, is sure. these these performances don't indicate that, and she's severely underwritten in this in this movie. Because I mean. Another flaw the movie has is trying to balance this like spy plot and the family plot and kind of like how those two kind of intersect with Javi and and like all this other mess of like that's happening around Nick Cage. And they drop the family plot and then they bring up the the spy thing. They focus on that for a bit, but even that is like under under underdeveloped. It just things just kind of happen, and there's, I mean, she literally they they literally show up when he gets to Mallorca, in Spain, and um, you see them for a bit, and then they 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 track Nick Cage, whatever they do the big like, he has to sneak in while while drugged thing to to the server room, and then after that they just yeah they're kind of like sidelined as like earpiece characters just like giving him like video game instructions. And then the mm-hmm. next the next big scene they have, they're literally like killed off. And yeah. And that's it. Which I so, also was wondering, like, did we just forget about that at the movie premiere? Like Oh yeah. Two random like CIA officials just got killed in that whole ordeal. And we're all just sitting there in the theater like celebrating the cage being a part of that. I was like, what? They didn't have anything for like no memorial for this chick. It seems it seems so so um so underwhelming that aspect. Especially yeah. since you have a comedy a, not a comedy legend, but you have like one of those comedy startup like people that have become so huge recently. Yeah. And they're certainly funny, but you have given them zero to do. And serial things to be funny with, which is a tragedy. You would never, you would never know that she's a comedy actress in this film. Like it's, you, she's not given any chance to shine at all. Um, and going back to what you said about like those underwhelming elements to the spy plot, the whole bit about Hobby's cousin, all that just felt like very plain. Like very, this is a comedy film and so we're not going to dig too deep in the plot which again it's like forgivable that's not where you're here but it was just so as you said underwhelming is the perfect word for that especially because um i mean this is also this is like kind of like the big 
plot twist in the movie because it's that that like the whole the whole time well, the, uh that 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 uh, uh Nick Cage and Pedro Pascal have this relationship and it's put into question several times about about um if he's actually if he's actually this bad guy and or not right and then they do that thing with his cousin and it completely like that's one of the major flaws i have with this movie cuz mm-hmm. once it's revealed that he's not uh who you think or who they think he is then it's just like oh so we're just like putting the blame on someone else and we're letting this character go scot free and there's not really like not not anything like truly like uh dramatically interesting there that that apart from when they start like the third act where they they have those like slow motion and they have to walk towards each other but i feel like that yeah. would have been that would have worked so much more if javi was actually like this this the menace like he was like the bad guy right because like right. once you actually like discover this thing I feel like the 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 whole cousin like diversion is just is just like underwhelming as hell. I think it's 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 like here's a way to get Javi to still be good by the end and justify whatever like weird relationship he, him and Nick Cage has and whatever. And but I don't I don't think it works. I don't think right. it works at all. The true plot twist would have been Javi actually being the like drug dealer arms dealer guy. Because not for a moment did I think that Javi was actually the one. Like, there was no expectation for that. And they don't even go that hard into making you believe that in the film. Even Nick Cage doesn't believe it throughout the entire time he's doing stuff. So, yeah, that would have been a major plot twist. And would have been interesting to see that pay off. Um, Especially especially since you have an actor like Pedro Pascal that can actually lean into... He would have killed that, bro. He would have killed that, that, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you have this you have this great actor that not only can be play this like super charismatic, like carefree, it's like fanboy, but he can also like turn and just be like that real bad guy that the movie deserves. Because exactly. the performance of the cousin was not stellar. Every time he would speak a, a line of dialogue, I would just like roll my eyes. And I mm-hmm. and I also think it's the very like stereotypical way he was written he's just like i'm bad and i do bad things and you're gonna do the bad thing for me if not you gotta you gotta you're gonna suffer some consequences and i'm like there's no nuance there either and it, right. it's it's just like i think that's where most like the at the writing level is where most of my problems start to suffer sort like surface with uh, this movie Mm-hmm. yeah and again i don't really i mean i don't hold it too much against it it's not like i expect no one's out of the cousin main bad guy of the <laughs> uh super fan but yeah certainly there were more interesting things they could have done with the plot that they chose not to do because they wanted to preserve that chemistry between nick cage and javi mm-hmm. uh and ultimately like i enjoy it because i think the third act with them coming together and doing the whole like pulling the gun out on each other yeah. and be like you were gonna shoot me like i yeah, think that yeah. would be like that stuff was enjoyable um and i certainly very do funny. love them remaining friends so while it would have been like a really interesting turn for them to take to actually have javi be the bad guy i still like that 
we're allowed to see their banter play out through the rest of the film. Um, but yeah, yeah I'm so I'm gonna mad. throw out I'm gonna throw out some gags that I think worked and ones that didn't, and then we can head into our rating. So okay. first off, the Paddington two bit that was hilarious. I thought third, it was funny as so. hell. Third favorite film, and he's like, it made me want to be a better man. And then they yeah. watch it, and the kid is crying at the end. Great stuff. Um, Very funny. Uh, when Nick Cage and Javi were on the wall, we saw that in the trailers, but I still thought that yeah. was pretty funny. It was a good gag. Um, but, I thought, but I think I think I think there's more to that gag than the trailer showed, which is why it still worked when you watched the movie. Which is like they set up this whole like fall uh, chasing. Because they, they're imagining the whole conflict in their head. Like, nothing is happening. But these, mm-hmm. these two kind of, like, uh, like high idiots are just running around this city thinking that there's someone watching them or, like, this kind of, like, fake paranoia. And I thought that was particularly what was so funny. It was, like, an, anti, an anti-chasing. It was just, like, n- there was no real conflict there except themselves. And I thought that that's what made that bit work so well. For sure. I thought the Nikki character, like the Nick Cage in his head, um, that was pretty fun, particularly when he just made out with him. And then he goes, no one smooches like Nick Cage. Tell them, tell them no one smooches like Nick Cage. <laughs> An all-star line right there. That was incredible. Yeah. Um, I also I, like the when he was putting chloroform or whatever it was, yeah. I forget what it was, but that thing on his forehead, such great like pitch perfect comedic acting physical acting from nick cage that part was great um it was it was so it was so um it's also very good like physical comedy when he's like kind of like stumbling through the windows which is not mm-hmm. very emphasized which they should have uh make it more like more like a screwball comedy type in those sequences because i it it was a funny bit <laughs> in the whole he, interaction he, yeah, he nailed that stuff. So they yeah. definitely should have leaned into that more. Yeah, the whole interaction of him being like, I think I touched my forehead. Did you touch your forehead? <laughs> no, I don't think I touched my forehead. He's like, guys, just... actually, I don't think I did. And then he immediately, like... Yeah. He starts feeling it. Goes into those incredible expressions that he has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was lovely. Um, some gags that didn't work. I thought the cliffside overacting stuff, I didn't really like that. Like uh, when he takes him to the cliffs, and then it's just him trying to get him back into acting. I, I was really confu- like that. Yeah, I was confused by that bit. <laughs> yeah, I was at first. I'm like, oh, I think Javi's actually being followed because he's. I mean, you set up this whole like, like uh, espionage angle, so you're like, oh shit, like something's actually happening. Um, I was just confused by that bit. So I don't yeah, think that it was, it was on. Um, and then the. Him becoming Sergio in the third act, I did not like that either. I like the idea of like leveraging his acting in order to navigate the final battle that they have to do, but I just didn't like it. Like the character I, of it didn't feel good. The whole wife, like the ex-wife being part of it, but then also being like, I don't care if you kill him, like go kill him, you won't kill him. I was like, when has you, she yeah. was like a makeup artist, right? Like why is she out here? Trying to put and on why, these acting chops, you, and also, why are you he definitely could have killed Sergio. He could have, and he would have. Yeah, it's yeah, it's. I 
I agree with you. The idea of that bit was better than the actual bit. Yeah, and then the whole Fruit Loops breakfast thing with the Kellogg's cereal box in plain view. That whole bit I didn't really like. Uh, and then the exchanging shoes. I also thought that was pretty weird, and they like emphasized that so much. They threw like three different was... jokes in as they're running away. I thought that was that was a funny bit that was going to have more payoff to it. I think they 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 clearly brought it up and kept bringing it up at uh uh at one point Nick Cage uh like complains about having to run in these like penny loafers. But like you would think that has like actual consequences in the story since you emphasize uh that setup so much, but it never doesn't. But I thought yeah. it was a nice moment. I did think it was like a nice moment of them being like sharing, but it never becomes anything more than that. Yeah, not, I was not, not, has not a fan. Not really a fan of that overall. But yeah, now that we've talked about those gags, any other final thoughts that you have about it? Non-spoilery? I think I would easily rewatch this movie. I still think it's fun. I don't. I don't know how many times I would. Uh, I would rewatch it. Uh, but I think it does have some rewatchability. Gotcha. I think that's. All right, Alessandra, welcome back. Did you go buy tickets for Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent so you can go see it? No, I just got done watching everything everywhere all at once for a second time, and uh, yeah, definitely this is the best movie ever made. Um, <laughs> nice for sure. I'm glad you're able to speed run that. And give us the true, correct answer. We'd love to hear Watch it. Watch it at three times speed. <laughs> way the director intended it. Hello, it's Ryan, future Ryan. I'm here to tell you that this episode is going to end, but you're probably thinking we didn't even get to hear the rating for Unbearable Way to Massive Talent. Well, that and a whole rant about rating systems and discussions of Red Rocket and Toy Story and the purpose of home itself. All of that will be included in a bonus episode coming out a little bit later on, so stay tuned for that. But for now, that's all the time we have. If you'd like to give your thoughts on the show or make a suggestion, you can email us at theboxofficeshow at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. Go ahead and be ready for that upcoming episode a few days from now. Until then, have a great week. (laughs) 